So block number two is all about the idea of inspiration. Inspiration of scripture. Up to this point, we've covered the three biggest obstacles that stand in our way when it comes to our ability to understand and read the Bible. The first of these three obstacles we talked about was the idol of scripture. The temptation we have as people to make the Bible more than it should be. Which sounds counterintuitive for Christians, but if we're not careful, Jesus himself, as we saw in that section, warns against allowing scripture to be our foundation. Rather, emphasizing that Jesus alone should be our foundation. There was a line that we said in there that's kind of the takeaway line, which is this. The weight of our faith will crumble the strength of Scripture. The only thing strong enough to carry our faith, our trust, our hope, and our security is our relationship with Christ, on which Scripture is built. Second, we talked about the idol of theology. The idol of theology dates all the way back to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember the story? Satan, or God says to Eve, do not eat of the fruit, for as soon as you eat of it, then you shall surely die. When Satan comes around, he asks Eve, what did God really say? Her response, do not eat of the fruit and do not touch it. Right there, she spoke for God. In that moment, she put herself over the authority of God and believed that she had the rights and the ability to create laws in his name. A temptation we often come to today. And thirdly, the idol of rightness. Reading into the Bible our biases for confirmation and to win arguments instead of coming humbly before Scripture and allowing it to teach us. There was a line that went with this one. Every time you approach Scripture... Expect to be wrong and make the Holy Spirit tell you you're right. So many of us come to the Bible expecting to be right and ignore the Holy Spirit who tries to correct us. So that's where we've been up to this point. And tonight we're going to jump into some fun material. Some fun material, and by that I mean I have been really worried about this block more than all the other blocks combined. Because we're going to be talking about the inspiration of Scripture And addressing some very difficult ideas, like what do we do with the contradictions of the Bible? What about the scientific inaccuracies, all of those things, in one fell swoop? We won't get there tonight, thank goodness. But we are going to be setting up some groundwork for that. The reason I wanted to start with the idols that we started with was because personally, I bring them not only into my Bible reading, but I personally have brought them in to my perception of the Bible. As I mentioned in the first couple of lessons, I really struggle with these idols. I very much struggle with them. Because growing up, I was taught over and over and over again through so many different teachers that the Bible was perfect. I think we all agree with that. But the word used in these conversations was a word called inerrant. The Bible is inerrant. It lacks any error of any kind. And this was instilled into me as my core doctrine. Ironically, this is the precursor to what would become the idolatrous view of the scriptures I struggled with. I was told that it was perfect. Everything I ever needed. I was told that when I become a parent, it is a parent's guide. When I become a, a husband or a, a you know, a husband or for your 
women out there, a wife, that it is everything you need to know about marriage, that it answers all the questions that you ever have about anything. And when I started reading it on my own, I discovered that's not exactly true. It doesn't answer every question I have. It isn't the perfect guide to everything I thought I was told it was. I therefore believed that the Bible had to be perfect, meaning no historical, scientific, factual, doctrinal errors, contradictions anywhere in it. But as I started to read the Bible more freely and open for myself, I discovered a large amount of contradictions, or at least what I perceived as contradictions. And my faith began to become shaken pretty intensely. We will explore more of that in a moment, but for now. I found myself really concerned with my faith because I had made Scripture the center of my faith, and all of a sudden it was getting undone. In fact, the moment this came to a head, this isn't in the notes, this is Bishop Darby Freestyle. I'll have to make sure we pick back up in some speed in a second. Uh, The moment I realized this was a real problem was there was a story I was reading. I was like 15 at the time, and it was the story of David and the census. For those of you who don't know, it's a rather obscure story. I was at the time preparing a sermon for North something Church of Christ in Sandusky, and uh, I was teaching on the temple, and I wanted to see where the temple was built. led me to the story. The story goes like this. In the older narrative, the first time it's written about in Samuel, God comes to David and incites David in temptation to count the census, a command God himself told him never to do. And as a response to this, God then punished David for doing exactly what God asked David to do in temptation. That hit me. Because I remember reading clearly in James that the Lord does not tempt nor lead us into temptation. So what do we do there? So then I kept reading and I found the same story in Chronicles. In the Chronicles. And I discovered that it changed one very crucial word. And Satan incited David to the census. The same exact story plays out. It's a contradiction. Was it God or was it Satan? So I came to one person at my church and I asked, what do we do with this? They said, well, it's both. God actually wanted to tempt David, but he can't, so he sicked Satan on him. I was like, I am 15 and I know I'm growing in my faith, but I'll tell you, that does not sound like Jesus. So I went to another teacher that I really respect and said, what do we do with this? And his response was much more honest. He just looked at me and goes, we got to be careful whenever we start asking these questions. I asked why. And he said, the whole Bible is a tapestry made up of one thread. And as soon as you start pulling that thread, the whole tapestry of Scripture can fall apart. So I was in this weird spot where I was 15 years old, and now I was burdened with the responsibility of protecting the Bible. It was on me, 15-year-old bishop, to make sure the tapestry of Scripture didn't fall apart by one loose thread. What in the world? What kind of pressure is that? Why do we think that? That the Bible is completely dependent on me to defend it. Charles Spurgeon said, that you don't, a man does not have to defend a lion. A lion can defend itself. And yet we as Christians believe that it's our responsibility to answer every question so that we can protect God's inspired and holy word that's perfect. I had committed the idol of theology, I had committed the idol of rightness, and I committed the idol of, of uh, scripture, 
and it led me precariously hanging over a cliff with my faith dangling in the balance of one small thread of one seemingly insignificant story found in the middle of the Old Testament. I work with teens, and can I tell you that a lot of them have faith hanging over the edge by similar contradictions. Tonight, I would like us to uh, kind of address this a little bit. Because I believe that the Bible's far more strong than I was told. I believe I do a great injustice to Scripture when I put the weight of defending it on my shoulders. I think Scripture can define and protect itself. So, inspiration. What in the world is it? In order to be true to what we've done in this class so far, I would like to let the Bible define it in and of itself. If you are following along in the big packet, we're on page 23. I think in the normal packet, we're on point two, the interpretation of Scripture. The Bible defines for itself what it is and what the Bible was designed to be used for. As we talked about and as we'll be reminded multiple times, anytime we speak for God or on his behalf, Outside of what he said, we are committing what? Idolatry. Because we are putting ourselves above God's word. Anytime we speak for God when he did not speak, we are literally saying, I am him, and I can do that. So when the Bible defines what it is and what it's used for, we have to be very cautious as Christians not to overstep the way it defines itself. Because that's when we're going to fall into a lot of problems. So how does the Bible define itself? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 is where we're going to kind of hang out for a little bit. Could I have someone read for me 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, please? So the, in this one passage, we see two things that, it, that the Bible is setting out to do. First, it's going to define where, it, where its authority comes from, what it means to be inspired. Second, it's going to give a list of things it can be used for. Does that make sense? That's the two things that 2 Timothy chapter 3 lays out that Scripture does. So let's just explore it. In most translations... It says all scripture is inspired, is the word that most translations use. I did not render it that way because I'm taking a hyper-literal approach in order for us to kind of see the way this plays out. The Greek word there is theopneustos, which literally, it's only used one time in the Bible, which by the way, as an aside, not that any of you care. Do you know how many of those things are in the Bible? Just one-off words that you'll never see again. They're the worst in college especially. You're like studying over all of the books. Where is this word? What does it mean? You finally find it, and you're like super excited because you're like, next time I see that, I'll be ready. And you get to class the next day, and he's like, oh, actually, you'll never see that again. And I'm like, come on. This is one of those words, and it's caused a lot of problems. If you're trying to impress your friends, it's called an apex legomenon whenever it's only used one time. Fun to say, completely pointless to know. Um, and it's derived from two Greek words. The first of the Greek words is the word theos, literally, God. The next, neo, which literally means to exhale. God's breath. God breathed. Inspiration, then, is the exhaling of God. 
the Bible is God-breathed. This is actually a very important metaphor that the Bible New Testament writers pick up on and they run with. In fact, what is the Holy Spirit? That word spirit, you know the root it comes from? To breathe. Breath. The holy breath of God. This metaphor of God breathing in and out his word is actually something that every single passage in the New Testament that talks about the Bible utilizes without fail. God breathed. If that's the case, it's probably important for some reason, so let's find out why. In 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 20 and 21, a passage we touched on two weeks ago and we'll touch on again tonight. Can someone read that one for me? So we see this image here, that here God's Spirit, literally the breath of God, a title given to the Holy Spirit, is responsible for delivering the breath of God to man. Notice here what Peter is saying. Peter is saying that no prophecy comes from one person's own imagination, from within, right? All of it comes from without. The word there, imagination, most translations render the word interpretation, which is fine, except for interpretation doesn't really mean today what it meant when they were translating it that way. Um, Literally, it means to loosen. That's what the whole word means, which is a really fun way that people in in Greco-Roman culture talked about writing poetry. They believed that the way poets wrote was they loosened their mind, and they let the words just fall out. That's what they believed. So that's the image being used here. God came in and loosened the mind of people and let his words fall out kind of a pretty image. So we have God breathing it out, giving it to the prophets, but then here's where this gets really important. Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. If we're going a little fast, I promise we'll slow down in just a moment. We're we're barreling towards a car crash. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 through 3. Who wants to read that for me? This passage reveals the conclusion of the journey. 2 Timothy chapter 3, God breathes out. 2 Peter chapter 1, the Holy Spirit takes that and delivers it to the prophet. Hebrews chapter 1, we see how it ends. The prophets doing their best to take the vision or prophecy given to them and figure out a way to convey it. But here's the kicker. As this passage reveals, this is going to sound weird to say, Hold your stones. If you still want to stone me afterwards, you can find plenty. But what this reveals to us is the prophets never could do it perfectly. The Holy Spirit gave them the message, but as it says here, in various times and in various ways, people tried. But it was only in the revelation of whom that we see the full and exact representation of God. It's only in the man, Jesus, that we see exactly who God was. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews is proving that exact point. 
This is the thesis statement that the writer, (coughs) Barnabas, made when he started the book of Hebrews. And he followed it all the way through to its logical conclusion. He goes through, and remember how you've read Hebrews, it starts in angels. Who has a better representation of God, angels or Jesus? Jesus. What about the old law or Jesus? It's Jesus. What about the sacrifices or Jesus? It's Jesus. Constantly, all he's doing is showing all of these things were trying to point us to God, but none of them perfectly could. The only thing that has ever existed that fully reveals who God is, is Jesus. And by the way, a line that my teenagers are sick of me saying, God is fully revealed in Jesus. Jesus is not one revelation of God amongst many, but the supreme revelation of God that supersedes the rest. I don't use the word supersedes with them. Actually, I probably do, because when I get excited, I have no idea what comes out of my mouth. The revelations were not complete. So the story of how the Bible was inspired goes like this. God comes up with a perfect revelation. He breathes it out. It is carried perfectly by the Holy Spirit to the people who wrote it. But once it gets to the people who wrote it, this is where we have a problem. Because the people are trying their best to understand things they can't fathom. And so they write. With their fingerprints on scripture. Sounds weird to say, but we'll return to that in just a moment. The second thing the passage does, as I said in the beginning, is to reveal to us what Scripture is designed for. This is the biggie. What exactly is Scripture designed for? Well, it gives us four right here. First, teachings. Second, persuasions. Third, straightening out. And fourth, a course in righteousness. Basically, it teaches us how to think. It teaches us reasons to fall in love with God. It teaches us ways to straighten out our life regardless of the situation we find ourselves in. And lastly, it is a literally in Greek, a tutor of righteousness to us. It is a private one-on-one tutor on what it means to be like Christ. Those are the four things the Bible are designed for. That's the list. That's it. So whenever we start applying to the Bible things that we think it's supposed to be on top of that, we have to be very careful because the Bible defined for us what, it's, what it is, where its power comes, and what it's used for. Whenever we start speaking where the Bible doesn't, remember, we're committing that sin. All the way back in the Garden of Eden that Eve did, at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Speaking on behalf of God. When we're tempted when we start seeing the word inspired, for whatever word, for reason, that's like a trigger word for us Christians. Like we see that and we immediately come with all of these biases. We carry with it all of the baggage of everything we've ever thought inspired means. But at my old church, I had our youth group do a fun exercise where I lined them all up and had them all define inspired. There were 23 kids in that class. Not a single one of them agreed on what it meant. I bet if I were to go around the room right now, we'd all have like pithy phrases that we've learned throughout the years. But then when you strip that away, I don't think many of us have an answer of what that means. So let's let the Bible speak for it. And let's try to pull back all of these biases we bring at it. And let the Bible tell us that it is the breath of God exhaled among men, written by their hands for the purpose of us learning, being secure, straightening out our life, and understanding what it is to be like Christ. When we get outside of these boundaries is when we see fights begin to devolve. 
We see them a lot. This is when people start arguing about scientific treatise or historical textbook. It's a political icon. It tells us how we should live and how we should vote or whatever. We start adding all of these things that, that we think the Bible should tell us to do, and then we actually read what the Bible says, and it doesn't say that. We have to be careful. Let the Bible be what it's designed to be. Next week, we're going to come back to that, exploring exactly what the Bible is designed for. But for now, suffice it to say, it is God-breathed. Questions on that? Madison, take notes. See how long I'm pausing? It's really awkward now. This is great audio for the podcast listeners. You guys can probably fast forward another 15 seconds. This is going to happen for a second. Okay. Okay. Then let's go ahead and jump into hopeful. Boy, howdy. This may be two classes. We'll see. It's nine pages. Like, why do I do this to myself? Jeez, man. Okay. Um, We're going to skip down. For now, we'll come back to some of these ideas uh, down to F, point F. The mistake, this mistake that, oh, do you have a question? Why didn't you raise your hand? I waited for 30 seconds. Jeez. We're going to actually talk about that next week, so I don't want to get too far ahead. But, yeah, you're on the right track. Like, that's – so for those of you who couldn't hear the question, it goes like this. Um, people in the New Testament had the Holy Spirit living within them. Does that increase the accuracy of what the New Testament writers were writing? Uh, yes and no. Yes, because they had the full revelation of Jesus. So off the bat, they have a better understanding of who God is. As we'll see in just a moment, one of the biggest problems in the Old Testament was people tried to write about God but didn't quite know who he was. So you have pictures of like David, who writes a song where he says, great is the God who takes the children of my enemies and bashes their heads against the rocks. That's in there. Clearly didn't have a great depiction of God. So off the bat, Paul's got a leg up on David because he's seen God. He's seen Jesus and what he is. Um, However, again, we have to let the Bible speak for what it's supposed to be for. And sometimes, as we'll see, we misuse the epistles. Because we believe that what Paul is writing is always, in every circumstance, a universal binding law for all Christians. And often, in his own writings, we see that it's very accurate for the time he lived in. But we just have to be careful, which we automatically do. Like, for instance, how many of you ladies out there are wearing jewelry tonight? The point stands. So, yeah, yes and no, but we'll get there next week. Any other questions? Cool. Okay. I want to uh, point F, where were we? Yeah, here we are. Okay, so the Bible has, in many ways, taken a backseat to Christians for one of two reasons. The generation above mine had a high devotion for Scripture and a low tolerance for questions. High devotion to Scripture, low tolerance for questions. So my generation, we swung to the opposite end and said, we have a low tolerance for Scripture, but a high tolerance for questions. Problem is, as with all things, the middle is the middle. 
have a healthy view of Scripture, and be willing to ask tough questions. That's the balance that God's calling us for. And if we're not careful, we'll find ourselves swinging too far one direction or too far the opposite. Um, the concerning combination of all of these things has led us as Christians to have to defend every apparent contradiction, every historical anomaly, and every scientific, um, scientific inaccuracy with vitriolic abandon. Why? Because it's life or death. Inspiration of the Bible hangs in the balance. We have to hold the Bible together with our own two hands. But again, I believe the Bible is much stronger than that. The actual biblical view of inspiration safeguards against that. It actually explains to us that the Bible is actually pretty darn tough. It has a lot of strength on its own, and it says a lot of incredible and powerful things. So, we allow the biblical view of inspiration to take over. The Bible becomes something that we can rely on instead of it, us feeling that it's relying on us. Does that make sense? We can rely on it instead of it relying on us. This idea of inspiration is actually mimicked throughout the entire Bible because God has one way he interacts with stuff. It's one way. Never varies. Literally never changes. He always does things for and in relationship. Bar none. Literally the nature of God is one in three, right? The very nature of God is Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit in one unity. In one union. Why? Because it's relationship. From the beginning of time, before the beginning of time, and everlasting, God is relationship. So when God decided to create the universe, he did it all in relationship. That's how God's always functioned. And if we follow the timeline from creation on, we'll see the way that God in relationship has always functioned and how it's led our fingerprints to be all over everything. At the end of this, I would like us to explore what that means with the Bible. Now, if you look ahead, we're on page 25, for those of you who are following it, in the big packet. I don't know what page we're on, little packet. But we have like five pages left. I am not going to read every scripture. I am not going to go through every story. These notes are designed to be more extensive than we can cover in class to provide you an opportunity to go home if you have any questions and look over it. But I would like us to see the way God works in relationship. We're not going to spend much time on creation. We literally just did a sermon on two weeks ago. We talked about the story of the Bible. So we're not going to spend too much time on this one. But how did God choose to uh, create the world? Well, first thing he did was he created two warriors and king, a queen, Adam, Eve. And then he gave him, them his divine authority through his divine image. Then he told them, go create like I created. He literally says, go continue the effort. But we did done messed up. Now, it wasn't all bad, right? Like sometimes we get so critical of Adam. He did literally name all the animals and organize the garden. So like positive fingerprints for a little bit there. But then like the garden went away and not so positive fingerprints from then on. But notice what happened here. God bestowed humanity his divine image, his divine authority, and the people were allowed to freely use it. Ooh. We're allowed to freely use it. This led to human fingerprints being everywhere. All over creation, we see the fingerprints of humanity. We see Abraham 
God needed a reclamation project to take it all back. He chose a man, Abraham, and his family, Sarah and their kids. He empowered them to act, gave them a divine covenant, and in so doing, offered it up that they could change the history of the world. But again, he freely gave them the choice to act. He gave them the power, and then he let them go. And what we see is Abraham did an enormous amount of good things. He had positive fingerprints all over the story. And by the way, there are key moments that he changed, right? God said, stand back, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. What was Abraham's response? But what if we didn't? God gave him enough power to even barter with him. And he listened. His fingerprints were all over, but he also did a bunch of bad stuff. There was a saga with the Pharaoh in Genesis 12, the whole Ishmael incident in Genesis 16, that time with Sodom and Gomorrah in 18 and 19, and the Abimelech saga in Genesis 20, on and on and on. Positive fingerprints and negative fingerprints, but did God choose to take the negative away? No. He embraced it all, and the story rolled on. The story rolled right into the Exodus. By the way, this is going to be the first time that you've heard something you may not have heard before tonight. So... Buckle up. God empowered Moses. And there in Exodus chapter 3 and 4 on his call, he literally empowered him to go and lead. He gave him miraculous ability. And he told him to use it. And Moses did often and frequently. Not always to God's, well, to God's desire. Like that one time he smacked the mess out of a rock and let him not go into the promised land. But ironically, that wasn't the biggest mistake Moses made. Exodus chapter 23, God gives a command. The command goes like this. This is uh, point three, little b. Exodus 23. Look here. Listen carefully to this um, because you're going to, it blew my mind the first time I read this. Maybe it'll blow your mind. Maybe this is one of those many moments in my life where I got really nerded out about something that everyone's like, yeah, we knew this. So, We'll see. Um, Look here. I am sending an angel ahead of you to keep watch over you and to bring you to the place I made for you. My angel will go out ahead of you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will wipe them off the land. I will send fear of me ahead of you and will disrupt all the people you come across. I will make those who oppose you turn and flee, for I will send wasps. I will send wasps before you to the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites so they will be driven away. But I will not move them out in a year, for it would waste such good land, and the animals would be stirred up. No, little by little, I will move them out until you become numerous and fill the land again. God understood that there were seven nations that now lived in the place of the promised land. So what was God's divine plan? Buzz, buzz, and sting them away. But isn't it like exactly how you'd imagine God to respond to the situation? Slowly and surely, not even to disrupt the land or the ecosystem, I'm going to send hornets and edge them out little by little by little by little so you can slowly migrate in. The animals are taken care of. The land is taken care of. The people are taken care of. All's well that ends well. However, Moses comes off the mountain. Here's what he says, God told him. You devour the people the Lord Yahweh will set up for you. 
Do not look on them with any mercy. Do not acknowledge their gods, for they are a trap. Lord Yahweh, and notice how he changes it, the command to go kill them, don't show any mercy, the Lord will send the hornet against the survivors until even those hiding are eradicated. Lord Yahweh will push these nations out before you. (laughs) Again, he got this part right. Little by little. So don't try to kill them all at once because the animals will be stirred up. No, Lord Yahweh will hand them over to you and will disrupt them until every one of them is killed. Okay. It's a little different. So Moses went to war. And the wars lasted out of Moses' lifetime. It went into Joshua's lifetime. And one of the most telling passages in all of Scripture, Joshua, the day before the battle of Jericho, came out before the Lord. And he was preparing himself an army, and he looked over, and there was an angel that was standing there. And Joshua drew his weapon. He didn't know what it was. And he said, Who, what side are you on? Are you on mine, or are you on theirs? You, does anyone have any idea what they said? The angel looked at him in the face and said, neither. I'm with God. Powerful moment. It was never God's desire. But again, we see God gave Moses power to lead. Did Moses use it right? Not always. But did God allow the fingerprints to make it into the Bible? Yes. Moses' fingerprints all over the story. We could keep going. I'll give one more example, then I'll call it a day, and you can listen to it on your own, because I have one more thing I want to get to. The law. Mount Sinai. God chose Moses and Aaron. Jethro came along and brought 70 judges, kind of. He was like, you need judges because you're exhausted, man. And he's like, yes. And by the way, once the judges were introduced, the 70 judges, went from 15 to 615. When you get more people in a room, sometimes it gets a little dicey. But he gave them the empowerment of the law. Did he inspire it? Yes. Did he give Moses the ideas? Yes. Did Moses perfectly relay all of them? No. Did Moses get carried away? Yes. One of the biggest ways God was willing to accommodate people with the fingerprints that we see all over Scripture is an animal sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 16. Really weird story. God's frustrated with the Israelites because they keep going out in the wilderness as he's trying to lead them out of the land. He's like, come on, guys, to the mountain. And then they keep running off to offer sacrifices to the god Azazel, the goat demon. Finally, God gets so fed up that he's talking to Aaron and he goes, we need to create animal sacrifices for atonement of sins. They're already offering animals. Let's just change who they're offering them to. So we get the laws provided on sin atonement. However, the Bible clearly reveals that God never actually liked them. Not once did he like them. Psalm chapter 40, verse 6, for instance. You were never pleased in animal sacrifices and offerings. You have opened my ears to hear that. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you never required. Psalm 51, verse 6. You do not desire sacrifices or I would freely give you one. But you do not want a burnt offering. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. What do I care about your sacrifices? Yahweh calls out. I am sick from the amount of burnt offerings of rams and fat of cows. I do not desire the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come before me like this, who asked you to do this? You are mocking my court. We could go to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where he says he desires obedience and not sacrifice. Or in 1 Samuel chapter 22, or in Micah chapter 6. Or we could just keep going. But I think the point stands. 
The fingerprints of the people who made the law are all over the story. What's incredible, as we'll get to in a couple of weeks, is God then used those fingerprints in a pretty remarkable way, didn't he? Because that sacrificial imagery became vital to one Jesus Christ, who utilized the fingerprints of man to fulfill the beautiful story that man and God told. God didn't even like them, but he used them. He used them to tell the most beautiful story that's ever been told. We could go on. The kings, we could talk about the prophets, like that one time that Elijah called down fire from heaven, killed 50 men. A couple hundred years later, John and James tried to do the exact same thing, and Jesus said, that's not my spirit, clearly indicating that Elijah acted on his own will to kill those people with the power God gave him. On and on and on the story goes. Fingerprints of man all over the scriptures. All over them. Because that's how God always works. God, from creation to the exodus, to the law, to the priests and the judges, the kings, the prophets, all of it. He was willing to use people in relationship, understanding they would mess it up. And understanding their fingerprints would get all over it a little bit, he still let them. And so if it's true that God allowed humans and their fingerprints to invade creation and Abraham and Exodus and the priests and the law and the prophets and the kings, why then should we be surprised when we read in the Bible the fingerprints of man? Now, in every single one of these instances, I want to be very clear on two quick things before we wrap up. God gave power, opportunity, and ability to accomplish things in the writing of Scripture. And they often use their fingerprints on them. With that also being said, the Bible is still perfect. 100%. But as we'll discuss next week, it's perfect in the story it's trying to tell us. The Bible claims to be the story of God and man. The beautiful love story. And by the way, the story reflects exactly what we would expect, does it not? Because what is the story of God and man? God trying his best to reveal his love for us, us consistently being unable to understand it, trying our best and failing, and God bearing with it, revealing more and more and more until finally he makes it all known on the cross. That's our story. And by the way, that reflects Scripture perfectly. Slow revelation getting more and more accurate as the story goes along until eventually the cross comes in like a, like a decoder ring that we lay on the text and it all falls into place. As we'll see next week, when we sit and argue too much about scientific inaccuracies or historical inaccuracies or seeming contradictions, we're missing the mark. I once sat down when I was in college dealing with all of these things and read a giant book, two volumes, of every contradiction in the Bible and why it's not a contradiction. It was a mess. I read once that there was actually two separate stories then when Jesus must have gone to the temple and cast out all the money changers because it happens in two different parts of the narrative. There was actually three different times, according to this book, that Jesus sent out the 70 disciples because in one story he said, take your sandals and a staff but not an extra tunic. But in another telling, it was, don't take sandals but a staff and a tunic. And then one, it says, don't take any of it. And clearly, there can't be a contradiction. So those are three separate times he sent the same 70 people to the same place. 
and offer different commands. You see what happens? We get caught trying to make the Bible what it's not. Fighting tooth and nail to make sure that, well, the, 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 was that the sandal time or the not sandal time? The extra tunic or the staff? And we're missing the point of the story. Yeah, there are times where it says that there are 2.5 million Israelites walking in the wilderness. But then another time where it's only 375,000. So either there was a mass extinction event where 2.2 million people died. Or it doesn't matter. Because that's not the point of the story it's trying to tell. The story of the Bible is what the Bible was designed for. A journal, a diary between a loving God and his broken people. And what is so stunning to me about the Bible is that in the loving diary of God and man, he allows man to take the pen. It's just incredible to me. He lets us write the story. He tries to inspire us, yes. He gives us all the examples, sure. Do we always get it right? Of course not, because we literally have never gotten anything right. And so what we have is this book. This book that so beautifully reflects us. Scarred. Marred by our culture, our time. Warped views of God. Broken views of people loss of hope, ugly moments of sin, constantly stained. But a God who shines through all of the cracks and reveals the beauty of the point of the story. As we pick up next week, we're going to talk about this story. We're going to talk about what it means to us in a way that maybe you've never heard. And then, finally, finally, we'll actually get to the whole actually reading the Bible to get the most out of it thing. I was, um, Nathan May is my intern this year. Um, and he came to me and he asked, he goes, I, look, man, I really love God. And I'm trying to figure it all out, but I have more questions than I have answers. And I don't know how it all fits together. And I thought the example, one of the examples he gave was brilliant. He talked about how it's like he has all of these separate ingredients, pictures, and things that he's learned about God over the years, and he just kind of threw them all together. And that's his view of God. And then he's surprised when it's an absolute mess, and he's wildly confused. Well, yeah, no duh. Because God's not a montage. He's, he's a cross-shaped picture into the heavens. God likes cake, not trail mix. I've used that analogy before. He doesn't want us to throw separate individual pieces into a bag, shake it up, and call it theology. He wants us to put them all together and bake it and watch what comes out the other side, something beautiful and lovely. But so many of us come to the Bible like a trail mix bag. Throw in this depiction of God as a violent warrior, this depiction of God as loving children, this depiction of God as smashing children against the rocks. Don't know how those are going to work, but it doesn't matter because we're just going to shake the bag and hope we never come to that piece. But the Bible is so much more beautiful than that. Read it in the context of a story and let the story transform you forever.